This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, Roberto Lovato tells the history of El Salvador through the history of his family. Lovato weaves the stories of reactionary massacres and revolutionary struggles in the 1930s and 80s into his own experience growing up the child of immigrants, Salvadoran-American in San Francisco's Mission District. Converting from nerd life to street crime to conservative evangelical Christianity, and then in the 1980s moving to El Salvador to join the armed revolutionary struggle of the FMLN. Then working with refugees of the U.S.-backed Dirty War in Los Angeles amid the rise of MS-13 and 18th Street Maras, only to witness the mass deportation of Salvadorans and of U.S.-made gangs to El Salvador. All as the war on immigrants and crime went into overdrive and converged in the 1990s, building a political order that would go on to scapegoat immigrants as a foreign threat to an exceptional United States and to cage Central American asylum seekers under Obama and Trump alike. Lovato makes clear, however, that what people assume to be a Salvadoran story is also a fundamentally United States of American one. It is a story that is often untold because the U.S. wars on crime and immigrants obscure the backstory of U.S. violence behind whatever new external threat is conjured up in the U.S. political imaginary. And so the U.S.-backed dirty war violence of El Salvador's right-wing death squad regime disappears so that tattooed Salvadorans can appear to the American people as a menacing spectacle. This is part of what official violence does. It makes people alien to one another and mystifies the histories that bind us together. Lovato's powerful, painful, 
and remarkably often very, very funny story exposes the official story as a lie. A lie that renders history to oblivion and in doing so hypes gang violence as a transcendent evil, making it common sense that more state violence is the normal and necessary response. Lovato denaturalizes borders, rejecting this exceptionalist nationalist notion that the problems over there in the periphery are somehow unrelated to the exercise of power here in the U.S. He exposes one larger geopolitical and political economic order that operates from the center of U.S. empire through Mexico and Central America and beyond. In doing so, Lovato plots out the transnational scale at which any successful struggle to transform the world must take place. He sketches out a revolutionary horizon in which Americans might become Americanos instead. Lovato frequently riffs on this famous line written by the martyred poet Roque Dalton, murdered by his own comrades. The line is, quote, Todos nacimos medio muertos in 1932. We were all born half-dead in 1932, 1932 being the year of La Matanza, a genocidal massacre perpetrated by a Salvadoran oligarchy whose business was selling coffee to the United States, perpetrated against indigenous people and peasants who had risen up for justice. Lovato writes, quote, Since childhood, I'd assumed that my American identity protected me from the chaos and pain I associated in my ignorance only with being Salvadoran. As a result, the awkward, sometimes awful sense of what it meant to call myself American intensified to the point of bursting the bubble of illusion to give me an insight. Because being American meant I belonged to the country that has overtly and covertly supported the governments, militaries, and death squads most responsible for our half-death. And really importantly, Lovato also places Salvadorans at the center of the story of the U.S. left, where they belong. Displaced from El Salvador, politically astute refugees helped create two of the largest U.S. social movements of the 1980s, the sanctuary movement opposing Reagan's refusal to grant asylum to Salvadorans, and then the solidarity movement, led by groups like the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, or CISPIS, which acted in alliance with FMLN revolutionaries to end the Reagan-backed dirty war. I have personally experienced the impact that Salvadorans have had on shaping the U.S. left. In 2005, in my early 20s, after graduating from college in Oregon, I took a job as the sole staff person for the Portland Central America Solidarity Committee, or PCASC, which had been founded in 1979 to support revolutionary struggles across the region, but that had since continued to fight to support the pink tide and to build cross-border labor solidarity against neoliberalism. I was fortunate to have been mentored by a number of Central American revolutionaries, including two from El Salvador. Lolo Kutamay of the famed revolutionary Salvadoran musical group Kutamay Camones and labor organizer David Ayala. David, simultaneously so sweet and so serious, came to the U.S. after being detained and tortured by the U.S.-funded Salvadoran military. Solidarity activists helped secure his release. David was always there for PCASC and for CISPIS. He worked for SEIU, for the Washington Immigrant Rights Group One America, and then in 2016 he served as Pramila Jayapal's field director in her first successful U.S. House race. Remarkably, David described being tortured as, quote, the best experience in my life, 
Being tortured is like running a marathon. It taught me how committed I am in the struggle for justice, and it has fortified me in some ways because you learn how much capacity you have in this body. In 2018, David died from pancreatic cancer. David's life, like Roberto's life, and like those of so many Salvadorans whose stories Roberto recounts, is a testament to the ongoing legacy of Salvadoran people's struggle for justice, here, there, and everywhere. El Salvador's story, Lovato makes clear, is not just this one-dimensional story of victims. It's a story about people who have fought unimaginable violence for centuries and in their struggles to recuperate buried memories. Keep fighting. Before we get started, briefly, I'd like to remind you that this podcast is made possible by listeners like you who contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. And so if you like this show, please do support it. It'll just take a quick moment. And even a few bucks a month is huge. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I would also like to encourage you to join a dig book club to discuss the books discussed here on the dig with fellow listeners and then to meet monthly with an author of one of those books on Zoom. If you are interested, visit thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. That's thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Our next book is Paul Renfro's Stranger Danger, which I recently discussed with Paul here on the show. Okay, here's Roberto Lovato, an educator, journalist, and writer based at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. He is the author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, and a co-founder of Dignidad Literaria, the movement advocating for equity and literary justice for the more than 60 million Latinx persons left off of bookshelves in the United States and out of the national dialogue. Roberto Lovato, welcome to The Dig. Glad to be with you, Daniel. Your book opens in 2019, and you're watching TV with your elderly father, and he blurts out, quote, those fucking gangs are ruining El Salvador. And of course, he wasn't entirely wrong. The violence is indeed devastating and widespread. But his assessment, you write, was seriously incomplete, in part because his own history within El Salvador and, and El Salvador's history as a whole were obscured to him. How did the gangs, or Maras, MS-13 and 18th Street, come to appear to both Americans and Salvadorans and to Salvadoran Americans like your father as this transcendent evil with no history and thus that just came from evil people rather than evil systems that damage people? Uh, well, that has a lot to do with a confluence of interests that are come that were coming together in the uh, early 90s when the gang violence started to escalate uh, after the LA riots really prior to the riots you didn't see or have MS13 on the radars of the national media of uh, the Pentagon or even the, of the presence of the United States who would eventually 
make a cottage industry of MS-13 like both Republicans and Democrats have made. Once the LA riots hit, you have people like Attorney General William Barr coming to LA announcing that they're launching a quote-unquote gang war and that they're redeploying 300 FBI agents in what was at that moment the biggest redeployment of FBI resources in U.S. history. It's moving away from fighting foreign threats, quote-unquote, to fighting domestic threats, specifically gangs. And so, you know, the image of MS-13 as the most violent gang is a construct that people like Lisa Ling, uh, the reporter for, at that time, National Geographic, you know, came out with a, a special on the most violent gang in the world. And, you know, there's never a statistical basis because there's not. There's no statistical basis for anything uh, as far as resembling a most violent gang in the world in terms of homicide statistics, in terms of other things. So Lisa Ling and, and, and other journalists start picking up on this. The LAPD uh, in the Rampart Division specifically, which eventually was exposed in the Rampart scandal where, you know, they were caught killing, shooting, robbing, dealing drugs, and, and targeting gang members for violence and murder too. So um, this confluence of interest comes together to create the gang scare of MS-13 in the early 90s. And, and that's where we really start then having think tanks, Democratic Party think tanks and and thinkers, quote unquote, and Republican Party, Democratic think, I mean, think tanks and thinkers really started to manufacture this. I mean, like Douglas Barov used to be with the Washington Post, used to be a pretty good reporter, must have got some virus or something because he became this right wing extremist. You know, he, he be, you know, he got like mad cow disease in a brain or something because he suddenly became this, this, <laughs> this whack, quote unquote, expert on MS-13 because of his war coverage, as if the two were translatable. And so, uh, you know, there's a small cottage industry that the Pentagon started outsourcing reports to its, you know, strategists. I mean, you had people who were training the Salvadoran military that killed 85% of the 80, 75 to 80,000 people killed during the war. The people that trained them and the death squad, the military and the death squads, uh, the, those U.S., Pentagon trainers came back to the U.S. to train local police departments, including LAPD, NYPD, and others in counterinsurgency. And so you have anti-gang work being informed by counterinsurgency from El Salvador and other parts of Latin America. And so there's this whole, you can't really talk about gangs unless you talk about the policing that helps create them along with the media systems and even the Hollywood system, right, that promotes these images that together create this gang threat that is actually non-existent when you look at homicide statistics, for example, in the U.S. for 2019, like I did. People in the in the U.S. see Maras as an invading force from a faraway exotic land. But, you know, Trump didn't invent this idea. He, he exploited a longstanding discourse deeply rooted in popular American understandings of crime and immigration shaped by Democrats, as you just mentioned, and Republicans alike for, for decades. Where in reality do these infamous Maras, MS-13 and 18th Street, actually come from? Because I'm guessing that most Americans erroneously believe that they come from El Salvador, when in fact they were made by the U.S. many, many times over. These are, they're immigrant kids that came from El Salvador, 
to Los Angeles specifically, to Pico Union neighborhood where I used to work at the Central American Refugee Center that eventually became the Central American Resource Center, Garrison. And, you know, they came about in the 1970s, really, out of immigrant loneliness. Remember, the war is starting to percolate below the surface of history and eventually explode in the 1980 with, you know, kind of the beginning of the war and the formation of the Farabundo Martin National Liberation Front that was fighting the U.S.-backed fascist military dictatorship that had been continuing for decades, since the 1930s. And so, um, the, you know, the, the youth came to Los Angeles, to Pico Union, and, you know, came together out of immigrant loneliness and a love of smoking pot and um, listening to Ronnie James Dio, Metallica, and other heavy metal groups. Yet they were the Mara, they were the uh, Mara Salvatrucha stoners. MSS. Correct. I mean, there is some debate as to how and when they were born, but that's kind of the story that I I, I subscribe to, uh, as given to me by early gang members like uh, Alex Sanchez of Homies Unidos. But then the the gangs, the Maras, as we come to know them today, were created also not just initially in L.A., but through policies of mass deportation. Yeah, eventually the gangs start adopting more violent methods because of pressure brought on to them by the Crips in South L.A., the Bloods, and the Mexican Mafia in East L.A., so that the young people start feeling pressure to go more violent and defend themselves. And that's where you get the image of the machete-wielding gang member that prevails to this day. And, And so this is the image that gives us the most violent gang in the world when you know, shooting somebody in the face with an Uzi or an AK-47 is somehow considered less violent than hitting somebody with a machete. These are the kinds of absurdities that inform the discourse of MS-13. So when you see Donald Trump just in July escalating the rhetoric to end the law and the legal instruments used against MS-13 and other gangs by introducing anti-terrorist laws uh, to fight, quote-unquote, fight them, you're seeing you know, the continuation of a long history of kind of demonization of not just gangs, but of Salvadorans. So when Trump did the Oval Office press conference with Bill Barr in July of this year, right after I called police stations in almost every major area in that MS-13 operates, L.A., Houston, uh, Maryland, Alexandria, Virginia, Long Island, New York, and here in San Francisco, and I, I, I looked, I asked them about the homicide rates because the homicide rate is how you can measure terrorist intent. How many people has MS-13 in the U.S. killed? 10,000 members, the FBI estimates. So there should be a lot of killing if they're the most dangerous gang in the world, right? So I called and guess what I found out? That in San Francisco in 2019, the police told me that all of two people were killed by MS-13 in San Francisco, here in San Francisco. Zero this year. In Long Island, where Trump has had, you know, a lot of support from the right wing, even fascistic police in Long Island, they have uh, have had an average of 5.5 killings per year. Not exactly a giant terrorist organization. And then when you look at it around the country, it's similar. So in that same year, in one month, in 2019, in August 2019, 
a handful of white supremacists with AK-47s in Dayton, Ohio, El Paso, and other locations killed more people than all 10,000 MS-13 members the FBI estimates killed in one year. And you're talking exponentially more. So this gives us a measure of how utterly absurd, false, and mythical the discourse of not just MS-13, but around Salvadorans, because when I tell my students to go research images of Salvadorans in the news, the only one that often comes out is MS-13. So we're faceless, voiceless peoples, and that's why I wrote my book, Unforgetting, is to start excavating the heart lost in the darkness of U.S. media policing, politicking, and, and, and falsity. So after the riots, Bill Barr deploys all the FBI agents and starts working with LAPD to mass arrest and harass and push to more violence, the gangs, including MS-13. Bill Barr also had his Immigration and Naturalization Service, which at the time was not, a, Immigration Department was not under Homeland Security like it is now. There was no Homeland Security. There was the Immigration Naturalization Service under the Department of Justice. So together, the LAPD, the FBI, uh, the Border Patrol, the INS, and other law enforcement agencies came together to start creating the gang, quote-unquote, problem in El Salvador, deporting thousands upon thousands of uh, gang members who were bringing back the structures of, 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 of the Mexican mafia and other massive U.S.-style gangs to a country that had no history of gangs like that. There were small gangs, like even my father was a part of a small clique that used to rob and do things, but there were not these heavy-duty, you know, kind of gang structures like there are now. And so there is born the gang problem, quote-unquote, in El Salvador with the help of the U.S. And then, they, then Bill Barr sends U.S.-style policing in the form of training from the Justice Department in a, from a protocol ICTEP that trains the newly formed Salvadoran police in the techniques of U.S. counterinsurgency policing that were taught to them by the Pentagon people who the, were sent to from El Salvador to L.A. and other cities. And so you, you see this cycle and these circuits of counterinsurgency policing that are at the heart of the gang problem. I mean, that you know, I actually tell people I've gone to the heart of darkness. The heart of darkness is U.S. counterinsurgency, poli counterinsurgency policing and traditional military counterinsurgency that slaughtered 80,000 people during the war. Your book is a meditation on forgetting, on the macro level of society, but then recapitulated, because this is a memoir, in miniature on the level of your family. And it's a forgetting that's enforced in your family and across El Salvador by a politics of continuous violence accompanied by an imposed silence that you frequently return to summing up by reference to ubiquitous Mara graffiti that reads, Ver, oír, callar. Look, listen, shut up. We're going to discuss this in a lot more detail, but to frame the discussion, explain this general kind of argument that you're making throughout the book, this dynamic of violence and silence and how it's played out in such a devastating way. Well, I came up with the title of my book, Unforgetting, because of the what I had read about the Greeks and their concept of aletheia, which is, both, is synonymous with not just unforgetting, but with truth. Because the, tru the, the Greeks believed that unforgetting was 
the, the journey of unforgetting was also the journey to truth. And they, they came up with the concept as a way to describe the journey of the dead into the underworld and either to the, the journey to Elysium or to Hades. And before they took that journey, they would have to cross the Lathe River, which was the river of forgetting, where they would have to, for the, the dead would have to forget the lives they had when they were alive. And so uh, I, I later on got exposed to this concept again through uh, Hannah Arendt, theorist of fascism, who, along with other philosophers of fascism, looked at the way that there are memories in, in, in individuals and in societies that are uncomfortable for the powerful. And the excavation of those uncomfortable truths for the powerful is the process of unforgetting. And so that's what I was doing in terms of the excavation of uncomfortable truths about not just El Salvador and Salvadorans, but about the United States and people in the United States. And so when you look at the systematic nature of the violence in El Salvador from the 30s onward, you're talking about the systematic support for the one of the longest standing military dictatorships that enforced silence through repression. And, you know, like Hannah Arendt would say that, you know, terror enforces oblivion. And so, you know, the and I would say that oblivion enforces terror because when you allow terror like the mass killings of the Salvadoran government over generations to continue, not just without justice, but without even talking about it. There was an act in 1932 that is arguably the single most violent act in world history. La Matanza, 1932, uh, where they estimate somewhere between 10,000 to 30,000 mostly indigenous people were killed by the Salvadoran government after rebelling against the dictatorship and the starvation it imposed. The records of that have been erased, burned, destroyed, and hidden. And so you have a point where the amnesia is such in El Salvador where right now, most Salvadorans, according to polls, like 70-something percent, don't even know about La Matanza. A lot of my family didn't know about it, even though other members of my family have a connection to it that they never talked about. So at the broad societal level, with a capital S, there's silence enforced by the state. And there's a trickle-down effect of silence that comes all the way down to our families, like mine, where I had family members who had a connection to that that I don't really want to go into and do much detail because I want the reader to have some of the aha moments and experience that I had in experience and, and then writing them. There were family members who who never said anything about anything they knew about La Matanza. And similarly, like when I'm teaching in a university of Salvadoran students, you know, like a class called the Salvadoran Experience, most of the students have no clue about the, what happened during the war to their families because their families don't talk about it. And, the, you know, these kinds of silences are, are known to scholars of psychology and violence and trauma, like Dina Ciardi, who wrote a book called The Memorial Candle, where she studied families that, it, that it were Holocaust families, survivors, and there was always a silence that followed the genocide. And oftentimes there was one child who would refuse to be silent and who would want to go into the darkness and into the silence to understand what was being silenced and hidden. And that child was the memorial candle. So in my Salvadoran family, I am the 
memorial candle. And that's what Unforgetting is about, is my journey to go and put the light on the darkness of the Salvadoran past and the U.S. past. The the forgetting of, of La Matanza is remarkable for a lot of reasons, in part because it was repressing the Matanza, an uprising led by Agustin Farabundo Martí, whose name was taken up again by the revolutionaries of the FMLN. Yes, yes. And what would actually be now, historians, it would be kind of a, it's almost, a, I would call it a mistake in many ways. I mean, Farabundo Martí and the communists in the early 30s, one of the first, actually the first communist insurgency and insurrection in the 20th century. Uh, it was in El Salvador in the 1930s. But, you know, if you look at who was actually rebelling, it was not just nor primarily a communist insurgency. It was an indigenous insurgency and, you know, very poor indigenous people working in the western parts of El Salvador in the coffee plantations around where my father lived, like in places like Aguachapan, Izalco, uh, and other places. And so um, really the Parabundo Martí National Liberation Front might have been called the Feliciano Ama National Liberation Front after the great indigenous leader who led most of the people during La Matanza. Let's turn to your your story. As a kid, you didn't know what to make of being Salvadoran. So you settled for the more commonplace identity of American. You write, quote, I resigned myself to the painful fact. Salvadorans were a people with no clear identity on Mission Street, in the English language, or in the United States. Stuff like this is why I sought refuge in simply calling myself American. Being American helped me avoid these Salvadoran complications. Or so I thought. And when you visited El Salvador as a child, you were proud to be an American and wanted your family to be as much like the Brady Bunch as possible. And you write about, quote, my spoiled kid attitude toward El Salvador, my distaste for the culture, my pride at being the center of poorer kids' attention, and the feeling of American superiority instilled. That was just beginning to soften. I was starting to get over things like how sick in the stomach I sometimes got, the bugs, bats, and buzzards all over the place, and how much I hated the food. Less crunchy, weird-tasting Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, thick milk, and those pupusas, which tasted good but whose very name sounded like shit. Your family became Salvadoran American when your grandmother Mamate arrived in 1949, well before there were many Salvadoran Americans. How, as a kid, did you relate to a Salvadoran American identity that there was not really a, frame, a readily available framework for? It was mostly a private and personal and quiet thing inside the house because there was no real reinforcement about it in on Mission Street here in San Francisco or in the society. There were, there were some Salvadorans. I mean, there was a wave of Salvadoran migration in the 50s, and some of it dates back as far as the 19th century. But the large, large community building in among Salvadorans doesn't really begin until the late 70s, early 80s with the war and the onslaught of the war. And so I, you know, you kind of have a choice as a brown kid growing up in the United States. You can either assimilate, learn English and, and, and be all you can be, you know, even go to the army. <laughs> or you can do what I did, which was kind of get close to Chicanos here in California. So they had like, you know, the well-established Chicano institutions. There was Mexican music. There was lowriders, lowrider culture and uh, cholo culture, which was kind of coming out of the prisons, but having expressions 
in the in the cities of California. And, you know, I, the working class kid that I was, I had, I went for that instead of becoming white. I thought I was doing something to preserve culture. And I, I was ashamed when I was younger than that. And I didn't know why I was ashamed. And I thought it was just because of the things that you read and the food and the thing. But there was a pain, like the poet Roque Dalton, great poet revolutionary, whose son is a friend of mine. He said that we were all born half dead in 1932. I heard that as a child and it resonated with me, but I didn't know what it meant until later. But it was part of my kind of the introduction, my introduction to the Salvadoran revolution was, was through this poetry that my cousins would share with me secretly behind closed doors. Your cousin Adilio. My cousin Adilio, yeah, he dug up the poetry and some cassettes and things from his university's friends and he would take me, he would dig it out from under an almond tree and then take me in the back of his room to show me all this prohibited stuff because it was a death squad operative that lived right next door. And it was stuff that was, was condemning your government at age 13. That was, con yeah, that was condemning the U.S. government that I, I had also defended up until that point. You know, I loved Captain America. I loved G.I. Joe. I played with green army men. I had tanks you know, little plastic tanks that I played with. I would go to see the San Francisco Giants baseball team with Willie Mays in his last years and Willie McCovey and pledge allegiance and cry as the Star Spangled Banner would play in the games. You know, oh, say, can you see? I mean, like, or, or pledging allegiance in school. So I was a very good American, quote unquote, good American kid. I loved the military and I didn't understand why these Friends of my cousins had started talking badly about the U.S. military, things I didn't really understand as a child, except that, you know, what do these people know about my country? They've never been there. So I was a spoiled brat American kid, even though I was working class here. But being working class here in San Francisco was of an, is another order of poverty from the poverty of the barefoot kids who, as the great Jali Primera would write in a song, Casas de Carton, you know, the children that are rich with worms, millonarios de lombrices, millionaires with worms because of all the worms they've had in their stomachs. Kids who would, like my friend Rolando, who, who recently died uh, here in California, my friend Rolando, he would be barefoot delivering tortillas and, and, and his family would wash their clothes in this dirty river in the city, you know, because there was no running water where he lived. And, you know, sometimes they didn't have electricity and we would go around delivering tortillas and we would inevitably run into all these low level and high level military people when we were delivering tortillas, right? Because that was his job to deliver them. And so I kind of like, you know, started getting an understanding of Salvadoran society as a child because of having friends that were delivering tortillas to big time military people and small time military people and having cousins who had friends who were in the in the early phases of the guerrilla movement. One thing that was striking about your story is that that experience didn't initially turn you towards left politics, but it did turn you away from your previous relationship with with American identity. You write, quote, my bookish demeanor and the fact that I traveled a lot for a working class kid led some to call me Mr. Peabody. The smart, time-traveling cartoon dog with glasses like mine from the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. 
As the kid who stole sci-fi books from the Mission Library with Freddie Weinstein, I liked being called Mr. Peabody. I felt like it spoke to my own ability to break up space and time and the gravity of mission life with the help of mom and pop's travel discounts. But after that 1976 visit to El Salvador, you write, quote, I killed Mr. Peabody and asked people to call me Tito. And Tito liked to drink, steal, fight with a gang called Los Originales. What happened? Why was it that that gang life was was your first turn away from Americanism? I mean, it's the first form of rebellion. I mean, we weren't, I didn't think we were really a gang. We were like a clique of guys who, you know, we did rob people. We did steal cars and we did deal drugs and some friends killed themselves, but we never internally saw ourselves as a gang. I think that's more the external gaze. And I was driven to that because I was having conflict with my father who had sometimes violent temperament. You know, I I loved my father as a child. And then my father, former alcoholic that he was, you know, had a violent temperament. And I was the rebel in the family. I was the one that broke the silences. And I paid a price for that in mind and in body. You know, that starts escalating with adolescence. And my dad acts like the state. Like I make, I draw a parallel between you know, the rebellion against my padre, Ramon, and the rebellion against the patria, the state, right? Because they both had the both etymological origin. But I, because of this kind of stuff, I created what I call the shit travels downward theory of U.S. and Salvadoran violence. The way it goes down from the state to the institutions, including the labor force and the family And I I experienced it. I saw the connection eventually, you know, eventually after I went to college and got conscientizado and stuff. But as a kid, I didn't completely understand stuff. But over time, as I started rebelling, I started realizing uh, the political nature of rebellion was preferable to the kind of existential kind of street level rebellion that I had as a kid in Los Originales with my friends. Does that explain in part? why you rebelled against your dad who made a bit of his living from selling illegal goods. He also worked at United Airlines, but he also dealt in goods uh, by getting involved in illegal activities. Like your rebellion was also a replication of sorts. Yeah, I felt like a hypocrite as a kid. It was, com- you know, being a kid's complicated thing. I can't imagine what it's like <laughs> to be a kid right. now. We had institutions, it was before Reagan, so... There were institutions like Mission Cultural Center and jobs programs. And I got at least a little bit of a nudge in another direction, institutionally and from my family. But uh, my dad was involved in this really heavy contraband business in the mission. Like he was at the center of it. And, you know, I, I he, he would get phone calls from these guys with these really raspy <laughs> voices and, you know, really uh, who, who I, I hated because I, I feared for my dad's life. My dad... I would overhear my dad tell my mom how they all, he almost got killed in the parking lot of Mitchell's ice cream and, because of a deal gone bad and people wanting to kidnap him and stuff. And so uh, I had this, you know, you have this complicated situation. I love my dad, but I also started hating my dad because of the things he did to me, the things he said to me. I grew up being called not just Ihue Puta, son of a bitch. I, got grown, I grew up being called Ihue Sesenta Mil Putas, son of 60,000 bitches quote unquote. And so, you know, I calculated, I probably have like a billion prostitutes in my subconscious. <laughs> a nice piece of Salvadoreño hyperbole. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like being, you know, I, I, 
you know, I've just been called this so much. I started rebelling against him until a point where my dad actually pulls a gun on me. And at that point, I was like, well, fuck my dad. I'm not going to talk to him anymore. And we had this giant chasm between us. And then my rebellion starts taking on harder forms. First of Los Originales, then I took a right turn towards evangelical Christianity and Reaganism for a minute. Yeah, and you didn't just join the church, you became a deacon. Yeah, I became a deacon. I went into the leadership, and I was hardcore. I preached on the corner, you know, and I would have these bullhorns, and I would blare as loudly against these commie Salvadorans on the corner who I thought were just lost. And I wanted my dream was to be like my hero, Jimmy Swagger, and go and save souls in El Salvador by the thousands for Jesus. And I was effectively what... What today I, I call a right-wing evangelical fascist, quite frankly, in terms of the ideology that comes with the genuine desire to be saved from the difficulty life that I had led prior to that and the contradictions and the trauma that I didn't even know I had and the, just the difficulty of working class life in, a, in San Francisco at the time. Well, a follow-up to that is, why did you see evangelical Christianity to be an escape from the violence that you were increasingly encountering on the street and also at home with your dad? And what did you find there instead? Well, because as a child, I was the one kid that, again, I was the rebel in the family. I I rebelled against catechism for Catholics. It's a a must-do. I rebelled again. I would have rebelled against baptism had I been old enough. But, (laughs) you know, I I rebelled against First Holy Communion and and the classes and everything that followed confirmation. I never did any of them, even though my siblings did all of them. And so there's no picture of me in the living room kind of on my knees praying at my First Holy Communion. There's, you know, pictures of my siblings like that when I was growing up. So, But I read the Bible. I was always a reader. Like I said, Freddie Weinstein and I stole the entire collection of Danny Dunn books from the Mission Library. And that, there begins my engagement with criminality and reading. I loved reading. And so I read the Bible voraciously. Jesus was my superhero. So when I rebelled and I got into this, this kind of more dangerous stuff, low writing and well, low writing is not dangerous. but That's just cool. <laughs> you know, do, yeah, it's just cool. Just being like, you know, being hanging out with my friends, Los Originales, having friends get killed or having my friend Danny... Uh, commit suicide by hanging himself, I start really, I need to get out. And so those seeds of Jesus that my mom planted with all her guilt tripping on me, like, hey, you know, you got to do your first Holy Communion. And I would read the Bible and I knew the Bible better than anybody in my family and better than a lot of people, actually. And so I had a friend, Hiram Vasquez, who, uh, you know, one day comes out and basically says, hey, man, I'm not going to be partying with you guys anymore. I'm saved. And Hiram's thing just took me back, and it turned out he had grown up uh, like evangelical in his Puerto Rican family, where Puerto Rico has this heavy history of uh, of right-wing evangelicalism that goes with the colonialism. So it came home to me, and I got on my knees and, like, you know, St. Paul, and started praying for the for, 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 to be saved, and I became a right-wing Christian. And then I, you know, realized eventually my testicles turned blue. I was celibate. (laughs) I was, you know, kind of getting bored because intellectually it was, there were interesting things like this concept of aletheia, unforgetting, that actually is a biblical term too. It means truth in the Bible. You know, some of the biblical scholarship that I was being exposed to as a deacon and, you know, doing Bible, Bible school. Um, But eventually I just got bored of it because I I transferred to Berkeley 
from community college because my, my high school grades were worthless. And I ended up graduating with honors and taking philosophy classes and started being exposed to Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, who really devastated my faith. And uh, the combination of things, just like becoming aware of El Salvador and other stuff, I, I rebelled against the church and I left the church. I became apostate with our pastor sending letters to everybody who knew me in the church to say they couldn't talk to me. So I was... You are shunned. You know, basically, I was shunned. I was alone. And because I had, I had to cut myself off from my friend because the Bible says, be not yoked to unbelievers. And so here I am without my old friends, except my friends Armando and Gloria, and without my new friends in the church anymore. And I was alone, so I took a road trip to El Salvador, and I, I came to discover the Salvadoran Revolution. Well, before we get, get into that too deeply, one thing that struck me about your conversion away from evangelical Christianity is that people often talk about this simplistic contrast between real life on the one hand and book learning on the other. And your memoir is, of course, full of lots of remarkable and often pretty heavy real life experiences that have taught you a lot of things. But for you here, reading and education were very much important experiences embedded within your real life. Oh yeah, no, I, I I've read since I can remember. I've read, I've loved the Word, beginning with the Word of God. In the Bible, is actually the King James version is a masterpiece of the English language. And you know, I don't buy any of the mythology and the right wing fascist ideology that some use to draw from it. I remember that same well of the Bible is also where liberation theology comes out, which is a lot more about the emancipation of the human race. So, yeah, I've always read, and eventually I I discover that, you know, that there's traditions of of poet warriors in Latin America, like Roque Dalton, who I mentioned earlier, who was both one of the preeminent poets in the Americas at the time, admired by Galeano, Pablo Neruda, and Roberto Bolaño and others, and also a guerrilla fighter, operating clandestinely. And so, you know, the, the in Latin America, one of the, things, the beautiful things that I, I kind of was exposed to early on was the fact that the poetic and the political were never separate, but they were always necessarily tied together. And I, I, I really, I wrote my book, Unforgetting, in part because I wanted to share that part of our tradition of being Salvadoran, which takes us a, a universe away from this whole gang and poor little two-dimensional refugee suffering image that we have. And the, I believe it was the ERP, which was founded by poets in El Salvador, one of the five political military organizations that formed the FMLN. The RN, the Resistencia Nacional, the Resistencia Nacional broke off from the ERP that, uh, that you mentioned after Joaquin Villalobos uh, ordered basically the assassination of my friend's dad, Roque Dalton. And you know, it was founded by poets. So you had this this country where poets, just like in Nicaragua, poets were founding revolutionary organizations and some of the great revolutionaries were also poets. And that's not new when you think about Jose Martí, when you think about indigenous poet warriors in Peru, uh Tupac Amaru, etc. I mean there's a whole tradition of the poet warrior that is really part of the reason I'm not the only reason or the main reason, but it's one thing that I'm very consciously trying to transmit in my in my words and in my deeds. I actually have a, a slogan I created for myself probably about, I don't know, 
35 years ago, when I started on this path, it was uh, bold in word and deed because of being exposed to this tradition. And so politics and poetry were never, and they shouldn't be separate. I think we lose and we get dead politics when we remove the poetry from our politics. And this poetry is is part of the, the kind of wholeness of the Salvadoran people that is obscured and reduced into a stereotype of, of Mata criminality in, in the United States right now. And you reflect on all these aspects of of Salvadoranness that are obscured, the accent, the dialect, the sense of humor, a penchant for vulgarity, and this like vale vergista, or I guess not giving a fuck yeah. mindset. Yeah. And you write that a part of this is because Central American stories are rarely told by Central Americans and so often fail to tell the fullness of the Central American story. And you return to Joan Didion, who who wrote in her famous book Salvador, quote, Tear is the given of the place. And you return to that line repeatedly what what about that line troubles you so much and, and and what do you think it obscures well initially i was actually besotted by the phrase i was like wow hmm. salvadorans had finally made it into the english language <laughs> a writer i was in college a writer of the you know olympian stature of joe didion has graced us with some of her words in her book salvador and i kind of like you know i spent time trying to fit my own life as a Berkeley undergrad into the the mold of those beautiful words of Joan Didion's in Salvador. Um, and that phrase, terror is the given the place, went on to become the most popular, the most referenced phrase used uh, to talk about Salvadorans and El Salvador. But eventually, you know, I kind of got decolonized. I be, you know, I became politicized, became political. And I'm like, hey, man, uh, she spent like two weeks in El Salvador, mostly at the U.S. Embassy, to write that book, which became as, as a New York Review of Books article. And all she concluded is that. And I'm like, well, what about all the jocotes, all the pupusas? What about my abuelita and her epic struggle to survive and overcome just pov Great Depression poverty in El Salvador that made John Steinbeck's Scrapes of Wrath look like a wine festival? You know, what about all this beauty and power that we have? Where's all that? It wasn't there. And so one of my another incentive for me to write this in English and try to get a, you know, it's the first book by one of the big five publishers published by and about Salvadorans and Central Americans in the, in the U.S., first nonfiction book, that is. And so I navigated this terrain in order to kind of like start the process of countering these colonizer discourses about us. And so, you know, Joan Didion, after two weeks, concluded that Terror is the given of the place. I concluded after 56 years of traveling, living, fighting, uh, loving among Salvadorans that love is also the given of the place and of the people. And that's kind of the point of my book. Is it fair to say that this is in part why you make a point of making a memoir that is often so sad and violent, also extremely funny? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad you find it <laughs> extremely funny. Uh, it I is grew up, in a weird, in an uncomfortable way sometimes because it's really inter it's really deeply embedded in the whole the whole narrative. Well, it's deeply embedded in Salvadoran culture, so I, I have to. My dad is one of the funniest people you're ever going to meet. He is one of those people you just look at him and he's already tickling you with his look, and then his words. He's a very poetic guy. Only has second grade education, 
Uh, my mom was also funny, but in a, in a different way that was softer, gentler. My dad was very just raw and brusque and, you know, really, really, I think, and I didn't realize it was also a survival mechanism for us because the the gravity needed levity to counterbalance it in different ways across the spectrum of our lives. So absolutely, the the humor was always was always a part of it, and and we I I, I wanted to express that to counter this these uh, comical, dangerous, colonial, destructive images that unite Donald Trump, Joan Didion, LAPD, Lisa Ling, and all these other interesting think tanks, Douglas Farrar, the the U.S. Pentagon consultant who helped manufacture this gang image. All these interests, like, you know, they, they know nothing of us except the cartoon of us. And so I tried to paint a more three-dimensional image of who we are, and that includes the, the love. And so the, 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 the terror of Salvadoran history, because it's undeniable, is, is real, as is the U.S. sponsorship of that terror since the 1930s, the training the death squads, the training the military, like the Atlacat Battalion that perpetrated El Mosote massacre of 1,000 people in hours, half of whom were 12 years old, and half of those kids were under six. So the U.S.'s bloody hands were all over this. So this history of terror that's lasted since La Matanza and before that even, but with U.S. sponsorship since the 30s, is the dark velvet background against which the shining stars of Salvadoran power, Salvadoran beauty, Salvadoran overcoming, and Salvadoran revolution uh, shine forth in the book. At least that was my what I was trying to do. I don't know if I succeed, but I mean, and just on a narrative, basic narrator level, I can't bring you into the underworld of our Salvadoran lives, of the mass grave sites that I visited, of the gang hideouts that I went to, or the revolutionary organizations that I bring the reader to, and the difficult situations that we face, without also showing some of the light and levity and power and beauty that helped me not put a bullet in my head, for example. So the reader has to have, you have to mix it up as a narrator, you know, gravity, levity, back and forth. It's a dialectical thing, I think. Well, I want to return to the moment and then the revolutionary moment in the 19. 19- 80s, as you were moving leftward and you started working at the Refugee Assistance Agency, Karesin. And at the time you wrote, quote, I was politically liberal, involved in the movement because I wanted to do something to create change. The humanitarian aspect of Karesin's work, helping refugees in San Francisco, felt safe and was what had drawn me in, as opposed to the more radical solidarity part tasked with taking over consulates closing the Golden Gate Bridge, and other intrepid actions targeting the Salvadoran and U.S. governments. I was curious about the more radical pro-FMLN flank of the movement, but not ready to commit to it. And you also write, quote, The galaxy of NGOs established throughout the U.S. by left-leaning Salvadoran refugees with the ability to turn poetry into politics was unparalleled in its organizing power. Salvadoran exiles and refugees deployed their incredible stories of war, 
tragedy, and overcoming to inspire hundreds of thousands of North Americans to join their struggle against the fascist military dictatorship of El Salvador and its main backer, the U.S. government. Together, the Salvadorans and Norte Americano Solidarios provided political and material aid for the FMLN and the network of social movements that comprised the Salvadoran Revolution, creating one of the most powerful social movements of the 80s in the U.S. I think this is an important piece of context to highlight for listeners. How how did these two wings of the movement, the refugee services and assistance on the one hand and solidarity with the FMLN on the other, how did they operate and... How did you initially fit in to to this this broad and kind of two two faceted movement? A great question. It's I mean, yes, solidarity along with the anti nuclear movement and the environmental movement were among the most powerful movements of the nineteen eighties. And be known to many, that's a forgotten history of the left in the U.S. Yes, except to those of us that were involved. Many people I know across the United States, non Salvadorans and Salvadorans alike looked to that moment as one of the bright stars of their lives in terms of the finding a direction and a meaning in their lives to struggle for justice because it was inspiring. It was powerful, uh, as any revolutionary movement can be, has to be, in fact. And so for, also forgotten was the fact that Salvadorans came and they were refugees, and in the newspaper they were painted as these poor little refugees, scholarly books that followed about sanctuary and things, painted Salvadorans as in those two-dimensional poor little refugee terms, unbeknownst to most that that poor, quote-unquote, little Salvadoran refugee was a highly trained operative, trained in the Marxist-Leninist tradition of conspirar, conspire, which was an, you know, it was a good thing, not, a, not the way it's in the English. And, and from a country where one of every three people had adopted radicalized politics in the 1980s. I mean, just imagine if we had one of every three people radicalized in the U.S., this tortilla would be flipped a lot browner, <laughs> a lot more beautifully, a lot tastier. Yeah. So the Salvadorans being very extremely capable, I mean, the CIA uh, has written that in reports that have been released that the people's movement in El Salvador was one of the most effective of the 20th century in terms of the level and of organizing and capability because it went global, not just to the U.S., but to Spain, and other parts of the world, the rest of Latin America. And so these refugees came here who were not just refugees, but very highly capable cadre. You know, had people like a guy named Joaquin Dominguez who should be, you know, raised up in the annals of U.S. history, or my friend Silvia Rosales Pike, uh, Guillermo Chacon, the Chacon brothers, Oscar, so many names that are just lost right now. They're, they're, we're excavating them out of out of out of uh, the the forgottenness, the people that came here, or one of my men, one of my mentors about fifteen years ago as a young activist, David Ayala. Um, there's so many, so many all over the place who these should be household names on the left and in U.S. politics because uh, you have very few examples uh, of what happened. You have uh, the compañeras and compañeros creating this two prong movement. One was solidarity which was the more radical flank that was openly, nakedly supporting the FMLN, confronting Committee on Solidarity with the people of El Salvador, frontally confronting the Salvadoran and U.S. governments, taking over embassies and doing other stuff. And then you had the more kind of humanitarian component, which was sanctuary, right? Because what we call sanctuary and immigrant rights was created by the Salvadorans. 
And so the, the, the idea, and, and, and people did it by going and giving testimonies in churches, influencing these churches and aligning them with the agenda. Unbeknownst to most, there was a broader strategy in which the far left would directly confront the extreme right of the U.S. government and the fascist military dictatorship that the U.S. was backing. So then we would introduce sanctuary in order to kind of like occupy the moral center that said, we're not for one side or the other. We're for peace. And so in the process, these Salvadorans had basically eaten the lunch politically of the Salvadoran and U.S. governments by occupying not just the far left, but the middle and the moral center. And you have few examples of a refugee community challenging the domestic immigration and foreign war policy of the most powerful country on earth the way the Salvadoreños did. And so I'm, my, my job in my book, in Unforgetting, is to excavate this forgotten history, give it a context from the inside that's our own context. Because even some of the North Americanos who were in solidarity wrote books about sanctuary as if they were in the story of sanctuary is how I got inspired by the Bible to go and help these poor little refugees. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, <laughs> the poor little refugees were actually organizing you not the other way around. So, yeah, that's a, it's a beautiful story that I wish somebody would write. Uh, I may write some words about it at some point. I, I have, but there's a lot more to excavate there, and I, I, I encourage people to do it. I think there's scholars that are looking at that now. But I, I really, I, I hope there are poets and, and prophets out there who are also thinking about bringing this epic struggle that we had to, to words. You ultimately left the U.S. behind and moved to El Salvador to work for Carecen's sister organization, Criptes, in, in San Salvador. And it was in that job and the regime brutality that you witnessed there that led you to become an undercover FMLN operative. What did you see working at Criptes, and, and why did it cause you to join the FMLN? I saw different things. I saw an organization led by women, uh, Isabel, Lorena, Mirtala, and other women who were, you know, had lost family and been brutalized in the ways women get brutalized and who suffered so much and sacrificed so much and yet continued every day to struggle, not just because it was, the office was in the city, but we worked with refugee and displaced populations in the most dangerous parts of the country in the war zones like in Chalatenango. And so I was exposed to some of the noblest things I could see, but also some of the ignoblest things there are to see, like the bombings of of adobe houses with entire families, mostly children in them, and strafing and death squad activity and people disappeared, people cut up you know, in horrific ways, and all part of U.S. counterinsurgency strategy, right? Because there are manuals that show how to torture, manuals about counterinsurgency, how to win over populations, how, quote-unquote, the you have to empty the sea to get at the fish, basically wiping out civilians to get at the guerrillas. Like inverted, inverted Maoism. Yeah, so I eventually got tired of seeing all these abominations, all these crimes against humanity, and I got pissed off, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something more. And I decided to join the FMLN as an urban commando, uh, doing, doing logistics, sabotaging infrastructure, military installations, and bridges and the like. 
What was that like? I imagine it was exciting, but often pretty terrifying. I was a kid, so I was full of a lot of like kid energy that just, fuck it, I'm going to do it. I'm crazy. Right. Plus, I grew up working class and I used to steal cars and the adrenaline rush. Uh, but yeah, it was terrifying uh, in, in my bones and things that I sometimes still don't talk about. Yeah, it was very scary. I mean, but but you you learn what fearlessness is and fearlessness is having the fear, but doing it anyway. Right. So like, you know, uh, operating in the city as a guerrilla was different from operating in the rural part, right, where you're in the mountains and everything. Operating in the city, you're talking about, you know, militarized city, and so you'd have to figure out creative ways to have meetings, whether it's in clandestine hideouts or uh, in public places like uh, Mr. Donut, where I, I have a scene where I'm meeting this really heavily uh, sought-after guy who's one of the top urban commandos in, in, in the country. And you're just hiding in plain and, sight. And we're hiding in plain sight. We would meet at like El Camino Real Hotel, wearing suits, like my my dad's contraband that I got, like one of suits from my dad. We'd be like businessmen, but our business was the business of sabotaging the fascist military dictatorships, infrastructure and, and military installations. And, and remarkably, it turned out that your dad had skills that came in quite handy for your undercover work. Yeah. And, that, that, and there goes where, you know, and, and that's part of the point, you know, like, the personal really is the political. That's, I don't. I've never seen it any any other way when I became political. Like, you know, I'm here working with the commandos. I had some distance from my dad, but we had a need for some logistical stuff like cameras, video cameras, uh, regular cameras, binoculars, and other 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 material. And I was. I think my job was figure out whatever creative way we could to fill these needs that were given to us by people that were, uh, you know, operating in different parts of the city. I, I, yeah, who do I go to in, that I can get stuff from and the cheap? And I said, shit, my dad, Pop. <laughs> so I call my dad, and my dad kind of understands sort of between the lines that I'm up to something. He doesn't know quite what, but he kind of supports me, uh, surprisingly. And that, that kind of began, started a rapprochement between us. My dad's Underworld connections at Hunt's Donuts in the Mission District actually helped my Underworld's connections in the urban commando units of the FMLN in San Salvador. And remember, my dad was a janitor with the United Airlines, so he could travel with great ease across borders, you know, as did I when I got his discount. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash 
dig Jacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash dig Jacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, dig Jacobin, all lowercase. As you mentioned earlier, a famous line from one of Dalton's poems was, Todos nacimos medio muertos in 1932. We were all born half dead in 1932, the year of La Matanza. And that very much includes your family. And a remarkable thing that you do throughout the book is just interweaving, weaving your family story into the history of El Salvador as a whole. And you write, quote, throughout my life, our family has been divided by the border between memory and forgetting. The machete chops up our families. And remarkably, your family was divided in this powerful way by class and caste because your father, like many children born to a poor woman and a rich man, he was declared illegitimate. And so your family includes both revolutionaries, including yourself, and a line of oligarchs who participated in La Matanza. How was it that your family came to, to stretch across such, such vast divides in El Salvador? And how, and how was that violent rupture within your own family that was repeated across multiple generations? How is that embedded within this lar- these larger scale violent divides that cut across the entirety of El Salvador and really the, the entirety of the hemisphere you show? That's just the nature of conflict in El Salvador, where you had during the war, for example, people that were siblings fighting each other, people that were in the same family fighting each other in military. And I mean, that's what capitalism does, right? It divides us. One of the most concrete ways you can see the way capitalism divides us is that capitalist armies, like the Salvadoran military trained and the death squads trained by the U.S., fighting revolutionaries who were, you know, trained in Cuba, trained in Soviet Union, trained in Vietnam, and like some of my friends were trained by some of the greatest generals in world history, some of the greatest strategists in world history, like General Jap and his generals that defeated not just the U.S., but the British, uh, the uh, French. You know, I mean, these five foot two generals gave the Jedi knowledge of revolution to the Salvadorans, which is one of the things that made the Salvadoran revolution so spectacular, right, and, and, and capable was the training they got from the Vietnamese and others. And so... Um, Salvadoran history is, 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 is full of this. I have family that was rich, that was from Chapan in the coffee fields. I had, But the women in that family would actually reject their rich families uh, to join the FMLN. And their, their parents would be like death squad supporting right-wing fascists. It's kind of like a red diaper baby syndrome on, on steroids. Uh, and so... You know, I, I, I had the same thing. I had family who, like you said, my grandfather was a participant in La Matanza. I found out. I didn't find this out till way after everything, after my participation. But that grandfather didn't rep that grandfather didn't recognize your father as his son. No, he wasn't really my grandfather. I never knew him except for one visit we had one time. He didn't recognize my father just the way that many, if not most children, according to scholars like Lacey Abrego and others, uh Children in El Salvador uh, at that time were you know, born not just poor, but ilegitimos, not recognized. You know, and these are like feudal, feudal structures that were kind of sustained up until the, like the 60s and 70s in El Salvador, this illegitimate status. So my dad grew up not getting 
recognized in any way by his super rich father who was a coffee baron, Don Miguel. And my grandmother, Mama Tay, uh, took my dad to live in the city eventually where they grew up in a maison, a shantytown. Uh, there was a shantytown mostly of prostitutes. And so my dad grew up befriending the children of prostitutes and my grandmother made a living sewing and being and and and, and befriended prostitutes so that uh, to the point where she and her singer sewing machine sewed her way out of the shanty town and brought her to the north and it's like one of the prevailing in addition to the machete one of the prevailing metaphors in my book is the the metaphor of weaving where you know we have the fragmented bones of our forgotten history that are you know in the mass graves of our subconscious and of real life mass graves with real bones that I visited too across 30 years and 2500 miles and so my grandmother I think is and her energy is one of the energies that taught me to bring things back together where she would take the fragments of colorful cloth that a prostitute would ask her to create a dress for her to her specifications in order to be the person that the prostitute dreamed of and my grandmother without even measuring it would create the dress out of these scraps and give that prostitute a moment of dreaminess and of life that was her own so that metaphor carries across my family and across the book and my history one practice that's very much aligned with with that metaphor that you use is forensics and you spend a lot of time the instituto de medicina legal el salvador's only forensics lab with a forensic anthropologist named Saul Quijada. You write that his, quote, reconstruction of memory from these bones is one of the greatest correctives to this forgetting of wrongs. And also, quote, the remains of El Mozote victims killed in 1981 lie in boxes across the aisle from the boxes of bones with the remains of gang victims found in July 2015. Next to them are the bones of migrant men women and children who have died in the deserts of Mexico, Arizona, and increasingly Texas, those left behind and then returned from the great journey to El Norte. Hundreds of thousands of bones lie waiting to speak. Explain the Instituto's work to, quote, make the bones speak. What stories those bones tell and why you think the memory politics of their work matters. Well, I mean, the, I mean, you know, most countries have these forensics, you know, government forensics labs, where their job is to figure out uh, how people died, what were the conditions under which they died, and you know, that's often a legal uh, matter. But I, I see forensics not just as a legal matter; I see them as a, a spiritual matter. I see just so just as I see mass graves, not just as a site of you know un unreconstructed bones, but of unreconstructed memory and fragmentation from trauma, right? And so I go to the IML because I'm trying to understand what brings those, you know, Salvadoran history together. And it, there it is in the boxes and in the work of these women and men who are literally reconstructing the bones of, uh, of, a, of a life. And so they, they put the bones together, they figure out using chemistry, using, uh, you know, kind of uh, forensic science, using genetics and other things to reconstruct 
the conditions of a life, but also under which a life was ended. But but in the process, you're also giving back to the family the bones of the person, but also the bones of the story of the person. They're reconstituting the story because as Saul tells me during one of our, our, our conversations, he says, you know, one of the greatest things you can suffer is luto prolongado, prolonged mourning, right? Because like a mass grave that hasn't been excavated, like most in El Salvador haven't, the family that has lost a family member to disappearance or, or, or mass graves or something uh, has no closure with respect to their loved one. And so there's a sublimeness to the act of bringing together the bones, delivering them to the families, and having the families start another chapter in the lives of their family where they have at least some closure about knowing what the conditions of death of their family member was, because then they, then they can begin, you know, the healing and the storytelling of, of the life that was paused by state-sanctioned terrorism. So, uh, you know, I really, I was taken, that's the other dominant metaphor, right? And it's very similar to the weaving that my mamate, my abuelita did, as far as bringing together these fragments to create a new whole or to put the old whole back together. You know, and I, I wrote this very consciously, knowing that we were entering a phase in, in U.S. and in human history that was going to start resembling El Salvador more in terms of the urgency and even the, need I say, apocalyptic scale of not just violence, but of the challenges that the human race faces. So I see the story of Salvadorans as one of epic overcoming of epic violence. And so that's knowledge we can use right now. The knowledge that led me not to put a bullet in my own head, having seen 30 years and 2,500 miles of some of the more horrific shit you can see in life, and, and the struggle of migrant families like my own and the more recent families, the struggles of the revolutionary organizations founded by poets who had a vision for a better world that they could dismantle these horrific military structures. This and more is in the book, and those are like the, 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 the those stars that are up against that dark velvet background of U.S.-sponsored terror that in Salvadoran history. So that's really my, the forensics labs were another example of that. You write, quote, where most see the refugee crisis as new, I see the long durée of history and memory. Where many see the story beginning at the border, I see the time-space continuum of violence, migration, and forgetting that extends far beyond and below the U.S.-Mexico border. Where others see mine as a Central American story, I see it as a story about the United States. I really like that line. What would it mean for Salvadorans and Americans, and for Salvadoran Americans, to see this as a fundamentally American story? Well, I hate to get psychological, but there is an element of psychology in my book. And I, even though he has some problematic things about him. I really like some of the ideas of Carl Jung. So like this book, uh, another book I'm working on, there are a couple of books I've already started planning and researching are about what I call the continental unconscious, right? Instead of like the collective unconscious, which is the kind of that well of connection that unites all humans, I kind of limit my perspective to the continent. <laughs> so, you know, this is a, my journey was a journey into the darker recesses of of the continental unconscious that brings the United States and 
and El Salvador together because we tell the Salvadoran story in a way that basically hacks off the story from the U.S.-Mexico border south. And we protect the United States' idea of itself by, you know, not really telling the full story of migration and what the history beneath it is. When, When we start getting at it, we realize that, you know, a lot of people, for example, think, wow, you know, we're entering a really heavy fascist state in the U.S. Well, I've been traveling, excavating, fighting, you know, I've been traveling to death, mass graves where the U.S. sponsored military killed thousands. I've gone to, uh, I've been pursued by U.S. trained death squads in the U.S. and in Los Angeles, in, in El Salvador. I've crossed 2,500 miles of mass graves of migrants uh, who have died because of U.S. policing and war policy and U.S. immigration policy that pushes people to their deaths. I've seen children's skin kind of cut by barbed wire. I've seen adobe houses where children were bombed, houses of children were bombed, all sponsored, bombed, bullets, and brutality from the United States. And so I've seen U.S. fascism for 30 years now, but suddenly people are thinking this is a new thing, and it's not. It's just uh, another manifestation of a very, very dangerous country that, unlike Germany, had no Nuremberg trials for what it did to the indigenous people, had no Nuremberg trials for the atom bomb uh, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, no Nuremberg trial for what it did to El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and it's still doing Chile, Chile, Mexico. There's no Nuremberg. So the United States is walking around con impunidad, with impunity. It requires an act of memoria historica, historical memory, which refers to the the excavation of those difficult truths that bring about justice. And so one of the ways, another way I look at unforgetting, it's an act of memoria historica. I, I wrote it in order to contribute to the memoria historica that I would hope helps bring justice to the United States and some of the actors like Elliot Abrams or presidents like Ronald Reagan, even if they're dead, should be tried in, in posthumous, posthumously tried in the court of public opinion or, you know, even presidents like Barack Obama, who people would like to deny was the first in caging them. But I have the receipts. I've been to the the immigrant prisons where thousands were first jailed by Barack Obama. And so we have to kind of have this really tribunal of memory that doesn't just condemn Ronald Reagan and obvious fascists like Donald Trump. We also have to kind of uh, do, you know, like those people do with Donald Trump, calling him a fascist for caging, separating, and killing children. Well, if Donald Trump is a fascist for caging, separating, and killing children, what do you call Obama who caged, separated, and killed children as well? That's my question to listeners. That's my question to the United States. And until we really deal with these aspects of denial, the denied memory of forgotten memory, we will continue the patterns that preceded us, that brought us Donald Trump. I think the most 
powerful and morbidly kind of hilarious example of the democratic establish establishments in a inability to metabolize the continuity between Trump between Obama and Trump on immigration in general and Central American refugees in particular was that moment at the beginning of the family separation crisis under Trump where John Favreau the former Obama speechwriter and Pod Save America host tweeted out this photo of uh you know apparently Central American girls lying on the ground in a cage and saying you know oh this is so horrible that this is happening under Trump and it turned out that that photo was taken under Obama yeah, there, there's that one. Well, there's a fact, uh, the more, as morbid for me is the the sight of those bones that I've seen in the deserts and in the uh, freezers of the Pima County Medical Examiner, for example, in Arizona, the bones of children who were pushed to their horrific deaths, their skin made leather uh, attached to their, to their skeleton, you can see. Uh, these horrific deaths, 3,000 of them, took, almost 3,000 took place under Obama, but nobody seems to notice. This is the scale of inhumanity that forgetting can bring, and which is why I have, I, may, I have no qualms, I make no bones about the work of, of uh, Memoria Historica. I think it's urgent. I mean, it's funny. I never thought I would get to a point where I thought memory was urgent, but it, it in fact is. That's why I wrote this book. Your book really emphasizes how borders play this key role in in this imposed amnesia, how they artificially sever these transnational histories. So violence appears as it crosses the borderline as this decontextualized spectacle, ripping all context from violence to make violence unintelligible, mystifying why it emerges and how it works. And so in your book, National borders, just like gangs and death squads and cops, they violently break up people and, and peoples and obscure them for, to one another, making them alien. You write, quote, the institutional denial of the destruction of Central American child refugee innocence puts up borders to protect and sustain the myth of American innocence shared by conservatives and liberals alike. Different circumstances in each country yield the same result. The remains of Salvadoran children and adults buried without investigation into their deaths, unstoried and without remembrance, regardless of who is president in Mexico, the United States, or El Salvador, the country where the first history department at a public university was established just 18 years ago, in 2001. The migrant journey is nothing if not a testament to the true constitution of countries. We're all dismembered from above by that ultimate machete of memory, borders. It's an incredible passage. Thank you. Uh, it said it better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed to say after that? I actually, you know, I just kind of like, I get in my moods and I'm like, wow, you know, border really is a, mach a machete of, of memory. It cuts us off from the relationship, not just to other countries, but to the land itself, right? Which is why what makes Trump and before that Obama's militarization of the border so hideous. You know, they, they are artificial, kind of they're, they're the borders of memory. They're the borders of dreams, right? The, the dream to save the planet from the human race is trying, they're trying to border us off from it. That's clear to me. That's why I mean, one of the ways I respond to you reading my quote is a quote that I include in the, at the beginning of the book, and it reflects how 
you know, the book itself is a commentary on the idea of nations, the imagined communities that, you know, that have been written about by Benedict Anderson. Yeah, Benedict Anderson. And so uh, I, 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 I took a quote from Ernst Renan, the great French philosopher who wrote in a speech called What is a Nation? Uh, he's one of the first people to really start theorizing and thinking about nations. He says, and I quote, forgetting, I would even say historical error, is an essential factor in the creation of a nation. Historical inquiry, in effect, throws light on the violent acts that have taken place at the origin of every political formation, even those that have been the most benevolent in their consequences. Unity is always brutally established. So if you look at the history of nations through, for example, a native lens, right, we're celebrating this week uh, Native American uh, you know, Indigenous Peoples Day. And if you look at history through that lens, nation states, by and large, whether it's Mexico, El Salvador, the United States, and others, are, are under, if you lift up the hood, using the car metaphors that we like here in California, if you lift up the hood of any nation, you're going to find the bones and body parts of indigenous people that were wiped out in the construction of those nation states, because those putting up borders are what chops up native people's memory and along with the actual physical violation of native culture and peoples. So nation states are a thing to be reckoned with in our lifetimes. We have to we have to really look at the degree to which uh, we can literally overcome a global crisis like climate change locked in these nation states. I don't think we can do it. Our, our mutual friend, Daniel Mike Davis, is always talking about the need for international solidarity as a way of kind of overcoming the, the ravages of capitalism. I, I have to 1,000% agree. I don't think a politic that, you know, focuses black, brown, white, native people on the doings of U.S. citizens as if that's the be-all, do-all, and the center of the universe is going to get us out of the challenges of our lives. And that's, a, that's a swipe at pro, the ideas of progressivism, even some corners of leftism. They're, they seem backwards to me that way. Yeah, it, it's ultimately so delusional and not only murderous, but suicidal. This idea that our fates in one country are independent of those of other countries in the face of global warming. And this is an incredible irony of nativist anti-immigrant politics is that, you know, the modern nativist movement started as kind of out of a kind of weird uh, wing of, of, of the conservationist movement of the 1970s, the popular, you know, the populationists. And now this myth that we can save ourselves behind our borders that's so pervasive in the United States and so pervasive with Trumpism is the core obstacle to taking concert, the sort of concerted cooperative global action that's necessary to deal with the climate. Absolutely. I, I don't limit it to Trumpism. I think Democratic Party politics have um, helped to create these narratives where Latino, Latinx peoples have essentially been erased from the national narrative of the United States. And so, you know, we're basically the tropical sidekicks of the national narrative of the real actors in U.S. history, right? I mean, we all know that. Latinos know we're being erased in Hollywood, on Sunday talk shows, you don't see us at all there. You don't see us at the Democratic convention except for one minute. I mean, I don't even like Julian Castro because I, I resent his silence before the catastrophe of Obama's 
caging, separating and killing migrants. But, you know, he, he was left out. Even he was left out, which is, shows how backward ass we are as Latinx peoples in the U.S. And so any politic, be it left, racial, that leaves out 60 million of us from participating and that we're expected just to be tropical sidekicks is a bullshit politic, quite frankly. And it's, 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 it's a formula for doom. Fortunately, there's enough enlightened people out there who seek some of us out and who we seek out to build solidarity with. And I see, I learned Salvador, solidarity with the Salvadoreños, as I describe in my book, as we discussed earlier. And I think solidarity is going to loom large in the history of the planet, lest we do ourselves in. You met a representative, like an official political representative of MS-13 in 18th Street in El Salvador named Santiago, who told you, quote, there's trauma, the trauma of the disintegration of the family, the trauma of the father who gets drunk because he doesn't have a job, the trauma of that father beating the mother, the trauma of the child who sees his mother being beaten, the trauma of the mother who gets with another guy, the trauma of the mother who prefers the boyfriend over the son, the trauma of the boyfriend who beats the son, the trauma of the son who leaves home, the trauma of the son who joins a gang, the trauma of the mother who keeps reproaching the son every day, and on and on. You also met with Jose Raul Cortez Vasquez, an, an indigenous leader who served during the war as an F FPL commander. And he told you, quote, the gang problem is fundamentally a problem that begins with the breakup of the family from the moment the indigenous people's land, identity, and way of life were destroyed. The family in El Salvador was fragmented, and it remains that way today. It, it strikes me that families matter a lot in your account, for, for your family and for El Salvador as a whole, but, but they figure in a way that turns the conservative account of family breakdown on its head. How do you see what your account versus the standard conservative family account? Yeah, that 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 was for me one of the more startling moments in the book is my meeting with Santiago, who is basically a gang diplomat, part of a political commission established by the top leaders of MS-13 and 18th Street, the top gangs. And you know, you're talking about a the top of a chain of 70,000 gang members in El Salvador. So this guy's like super powerful when he's clandestine meeting, and. You know, we're talking about Monsignor Romero, and he admires Monsignor Romero, Monsignor Romero. And sort of identifies with him. Identifies with him. I'm like, wow, this guy's full of it. I'm, <laughs> I'm not trusting him. But, you know, he, he's also talking to me about books, and, and eventually the conversation gets personal. And I'm like, I'm wanting to get at, in the course of my book, to understand what turns a kid into a killer. And I kind of get the answer. I kind of don't. I feel like I didn't get it from that interview. But then later on, I went back and I realized, hey, man, I did get the answer. And it's in this passage you just said. It's like he was reflecting back to me, echoing back to me, almost in like spoken word, the way he did it, the history of trauma that he had lived that made him who he was. You know, that relates to the fragmentation of his own family, single mother-headed household, just like my dad in the 1920s and 30s, single mom-headed household became part of a little criminal gang in San Salvador, just like me with Los Originales, you know, doing our little stealing, robbing, you know, dealing thing. 
you know, there was there's a, I was trying to show the connection over generations of this is a it's also the story of the family and the challenges the family really does face. The family, I mean, one of the reasons I don't have a bullet in my head is my family. My family, my brothers, Ramon, a, a dear, sweet heart of a man. My mother, Maria Elena Lovato, Maria Elena Albarenga Lovato, who's deceased, is you know is the greatest heart I will probably ever know. Adored me regardless of what I did, and that kind of love and the power of that, the creativity that it inspired, and you know the the the, the family as a as a, as a way to kind of weigh out of, of the challenges is a response, just like the way that Jose Raul described to me, the, the way he sees Salvadoran history from an indigenous perspective, you start destroying the indigenous family, you're going to get these other family structures, which come with modernity, right, with capitalism, and the dismantling of indigenous structures, including the indigenous family structures, is just, it's, it's, it's a guaranteed kind of path to where we are right now, actually, if you look at it from an indigenous perspective, I think. You know, I have indigenous family in my history and my on both sides of my family through my great grandmothers, but I was completely cut off from that knowledge. If I, if I would have had that knowledge, that access, it could have changed the the direction of my life. I might have not have made some of the more difficult and and tra trauma inducing experiences that I had had I connected with you know the indigenous roots of my family. But I didn't have that. I grew up in that silence. Being, you know, and having this official Salvadoran identity, which, you know, at the end of the day is as illusory as American, quote unquote, identity or Mexican identity. They're, they're imagined communities. They're fictions that are constructed for people to be, be allied to flags that induce you to either kill for them or die for them. That's what's really, in the case of El Salvador and other countries, what flags were born for. Flags were primarily for getting people to get allegiance in order to kill or die for them. In a way, your book is trying to find out the same thing about the FMLN, which went from fighting death squads in the 80s to running a government with its own brutal mano dura operation against gangs in recent years. And you're also trying to figure out the same sort of thing about your driver in El Salvador, Isaias, who you discover was a member of a death squad battalion, battalion during the war who would have no doubt tortured and killed you if you'd encountered each other at the time, but who was protecting your life. Yeah. During your visit to El Salvador. And there's this basic humanism in your work that all children are born innocent. So the question is, what makes some do such monstrous things and become so habituated to doing them? And you could even ask the same question with that kind of humanistic lens about many Americans who do awful things but feel that they are good and right, or at least necessary, because you start with this humanistic presumption of the innocence of the child. Yeah, these good and evil kind of notions need to go the way of the toilet bowl. I think, you know, whether they're religious or whatever, but that's not a that's not a world that's going to save us from the complications, the kind of geometrics, the calculus, the trigonometry of complexity and quantum physics of life in the 21st century when we got these arithmetic binary good and evil moral codes trying to make our way in this complicated world it's it's, it's fruitless it's proven its fruitlessness and so you know i look at isaias like my driver and i'm like well you know i didn't know he was a death squad operative and prior to that i had dinner with him and his family he treated me wonderfully he protected me he used his military skills 
I knew he was in the military, but I didn't know he was like some death squad operative until later. You know, but I had dined with him. I'd eaten his his wife's cooking. Um, I'd played with him and his boy. You know, he we'd been to some really hairy, scary places uh, in gang country. You know, and, and he's also with me, and he tried to warn me when I was at a mass grave site, and I got, you know, pictures and documentation of of the site after two hours of hiking. And I came back and he's there waiting for me. He says, hey, boss, let's get out of here. And I'm like, no, no, I have to say goodbye to the, the police that protected me and the the forensics people that worked, that, that gave me the information. So he tried to warn me and I just blew him off. The forensic people leave immediately because there's tension between the forensics leader, who's kind of a right-wing conservative, and the FMLN government of Salvador Sanchez Seren, who I met during the war, who was a top commander of the group that I belonged to, the FPL, the Fuerza Populares de Liberación. And so his name was Leonel back then. And so uh, Sanchez Seren's attorney general office had a representative when we came back from the gravesite after, you know, an hour and a half hike or so and going to this really scary area protected by these M16 bearing militarized police. And they, they forced me to, this woman walks up to me, she says, you're going to erase those pictures now. And I put up a fight, but they eventually had the same police that were protecting me, FMLM police, surrounding me at gunpoint to erase my pictures. Unbeknownst to them, I was who I was back in the day. I was one of, I wasn't one of them because this is another FMLN. That's not my FMLN. And that's kind of one of the things I show is like, I can't just look at the FMLN through the lens of the current condition of the FMLN, right, which is, has elements of it that are very corrupt, corrupt, you know, top leaders who are corrupt. Uh, this also has, you know, really still some really visionary people who are in it who want to do right. But neither can I just look at it through the lens of the, the forgotten past. But I, I do, in my book, want to excavate, unforget the heroic era of solidarity and and the FMLN, which was doing what I thought was the good right thing to do in the face of a fascist military dictatorship that was slaughtering thousands, you know, entire towns, sometimes made up mostly of children. And so um, that FMLN has been lost in the in the memory, like even like a young Salvadoran here in the U.S. right now, they don't know that part of the FMLN. I had a young woman tell me, wow, I didn't realize the FMLN were the good guys. <laughs> well, I don't know about being the good guys, but we were trying to do the right thing as far as fighting a fascist military dictatorship. And that's that's really one of the big things I want to unforget. I actually feel like Salvadorans bear knowledge that is like Jedi knowledge before the brave new world we're entering right now in the in this in the, in, in on the globe. We need, in the face of intersecting crises like not just Trump or neo, the rise of neo-fascism, uh, the economic decline of the U.S. and you know the machinations of the de- betrayals of the Democratic Party. I mean, even if we manage these in COVID-19, we're then just going to be kind of a test run to face the fight of our lives, which is climate change. So in the face of these intersecting crises, I knew in 2015 that, because they were already visible to me uh, because of what I knew about U.S. history and El Salvador and in the U.S., I was like, okay, I want to donate, I want to give something of what I know about the Jedi knowledge of what sociologists call the millenarian sensibility that we're going to need to face these challenges. And so the closest I have to that is are those wins, the spirit of the times that drove me to 
you know, let go being American in the way I was and to become American with an accent on the E and to become a revolutionary. And that's kind of really one of the points of my book as well is to share my access to this experience that was unique and that's kind of necessary right now. We need to think about what revolution means today. It doesn't mean what it meant to me and us back in the you know 80s, 90s. It means something else at a time when there has to be a global component that's more clear and articulated. I don't have the answer, but I do know the direction. The direction is that we're not going to liberal, progressive our way out of these crises. We have to adopt a revolutionary mindset and practice before these challenges, or we're doomed. Well, Roberto Lovato, thank you very much. My pleasure, Daniel. El pueblo salvadoreño tiene el cielo por sombrero. Tan alta es su dignidad en la búsqueda del tiempo en que florezca la tierra por los que han ido cayendo. Roberto Lovato is the author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. And we are going to go out with the anthem of Revolutionary El Salvador, mentioned in Lovato's book, El Sombrero Azul, written by the late great Ali Primera and performed by Los Guaraguao. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, the vampire will not let go while there remains a single muscle, sinew, or drop of blood to be exploited. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. Same on Facebook, I believe. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and do subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Rating and reviewing us helps introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling a friend. Truly, just think of a friend who doesn't listen to the podcast. Tell them why you listen to the podcast, why you like it, why you think they should. That is what we really appreciate. Please make propaganda for us. And do, last but not least, find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is huge. Y hoy andan por estas tierras, como andar por sus corras.